came down here about five different times in 95, 96, 97. And both of us retained from that uh, time an image of Bartlett Church as this kind of big heat-sucking barn. <laughs> um, and so when we came in this morning and we walked in the door and we kind of looked around back in through there looking for the adult education thing, which we didn't know was happening out here. So we kind of saw the whole, that whole part. And then we walked into here and both of us just went, wow, this place is beautiful. We were really astonished, frankly. Um, so congratulations to whoever is most responsible for that. And congratulations to everybody else too, because it's this is really a cheerful-looking place to walk into. And, and like I mentioned, we, we already sort of were thinking differently from that. Um, and speaking of cheerfulness or cheerlessness or that kind of stuff, I also had uh, perhaps exaggerated impression of, um, of your dwindling numbers. I don't, I don't know where I picked that up. I had this idea that, oh, man, they're probably kind of in a funk and so, how am I, what am I going to preach about? Well, you'll see what I'll preach about. But um, when Pastor Don asked me to come and speak, I asked him, first of all, what have you guys been talking about already? Um, to kind of get that context. And then I believe the Lord put on a certain thing on my heart, which we'll share with you in just a moment. Um, but it has to do gradually, generally, I want to look today at the relationship to, uh, between God and His church. Okay, you're his church, Alliance Bible Church. You're wondering what is God's relationship to us. And let me start with where we usually think. I think most of us think of church, maybe not consciously. We wouldn't say this. But this is a kind of our visceral feeling about churches. It's this gathering of people who commemorate a very ancient person, and maybe the founder or something back. It's sort of like the Daughters of the American Revolution. Uh, if you know that organization back on the East Coast, or if you're a Carlton Fisk um, um, fan club, or if you're a Sox fan, well, you are a Sox fan, they'd be Carlton Fisk. But if you're a Cubs fan, you know, the great Ernie Banks fan club. Uh, so some people think of churches like that. It's just gathering of people who remember with affection somebody from a long time ago. And we don't always necessarily expect that person you know, to show up. If we have needs, yeah, we address our needs to that person. Hey, you know, please remember us. We're down here. We need you. Um, but we, we really do think of God, not only individually, but particularly in relation to the church, as fairly remote. And if you take it even into our images of the afterlife, again, I don't know what you think, but I think most people, when they think of the next life, they're sort of like this you go through the gates, and you come into this space, and uh, there's sort of it's sort of like an old medieval serfdom thing. There's you know the kind of the, the normal people out here, and then there's a hill, and way up on top of the hill there's this mansion, and God's up there, and you know he's still kind of remote, even in heaven. That's how we think about our relationship to God. Let's go to the scriptures and see what he says to us about his relationship to us. And I'll start with Genesis 1, 27. And we'll go all the way to Revelation. So I don't know, I hope you packed a lunch. 
And I hope it's, you know, someplace not out in the hot sun. Genesis one twenty seven says this, and, and understand, right before I even read it out loud, this is Hebrew poetry. So think about poetically how you would interpret this. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, if you don't know a single syllable of Hebrew, you still can hear how poetic that is, right? I'll read it again. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, that, to me, that seems pretty clear that what that's saying is that something about the way that God created us as male and female is, is an expansion or an explanation of what he meant when he said the image of God. Now, theologians, this is like a playground for theologians, the image of God. And you'll hear people go round and round, and you'll hear discussions, and you'll read books and chapters, and, you know, the image of God. What does it mean that we're made in the image of God? Well, I'm not going to go off on a long thing about that, but it seems really clear here that at the very least, being made in the image of God means we're made for relationship. We're made in relationship. That something about the image of God is reflected in that He created us in His image. He created us as relational, complementary people. Susan and I attended a wedding yesterday. It was really fun. And that I kind of knew that was coming up. It's one reason when Don asked me to preach, I said, hey, uh, you know, I'll be right the next day after that wedding, so my mind was already thinking along those lines. Male and female interrelationship. That's what God shows us all the way from this very first page of Scripture all the way to the very end, is that what God sees us as is these complementary reflections of himself, of his personhood. That's who he sees us as, as, as visible to each other, little metaphors, little similes, little images of relationship. And he himself, God, wants relationship with us. Um, yeah, it's so, so if we talk about God, um, you don't get, you know, your theology books will talk about all these multisyllabic terms like omniscience and omnipotence and I don't know what else. Omnivore? No, that's a bear. It's, it's all these different, all these different like broad concepts of God. But what God shows of Himself over and over is He just wants to relate to us. He wants somebody to talk with. And you know, in the garden, that's what He did. He walked with His uh, creation, had fellowship with Him. When I was thinking about Mary and Susie, we gave it. A good five days thought, I think, before we decided to go ahead and do that. And I, I happened to be out near where her folks were. She was in Omaha, Nebraska. Her folks were about two hours from there, um, near a nice fishing lake. And we stopped at her parents' house, a big old farmhouse in Iowa. And they could see almost immediately we were getting together. I mean, we just barely knew each other. But, you know, her mom and dad kind of looked at each other and said, Hey, I think Susie finally got somebody. I mean, when I say finally, we were both 34 years old, okay? We were single, 34, and her parents are going, whoa, I think this might be it. And I remember her mother said something. I've never forgotten it. Her mother said, you know, and we hadn't said we were getting married. We hadn't asked her yet. 
Anyway, her mother said, you know, you're going to spend your whole life with somebody. He's got to be able to sit at the kitchen table for 50 years and talk to that person. (laughs) I still remember that. She said, it's got to be somebody you can sit at the kitchen table for 50 years and just talk to each other. That was really good advice. Um, I don't know what bases other people choose for marriage. I think sometimes we often think that marriage or relationships, including our relationship to God, remember that's where I'm going, so every time I talk about something else, it's some kind of bouncing off of that idea. I think a lot of us think relationships are based on our attractiveness to the other. If we're an attractive catch, maybe we'll get somebody. I remember in seventh grade, one of the first crushes I had, Becky Dickin. <laughs> Becky Dickin, a seventh grade. Now, she couldn't have been more than 13 or 14, and she couldn't have been more than about five foot two. But in the class tournaments, you know, we played basketball at the end of the year, and all the seventh grade teams played all the other seventh grade teams and all the, in our school, a local elementary school, uh, or middle school, whatever it was called then. And the eighth graders played each other. Anyway, Becky Dickens scored 32 points. This little five foot two girl scored 32 points in one game. And I was just, everybody was just blown away. Like, whoa. And man, I thought I was in love. Uh, wow. I remember I rode my bike out to see Becky Dickens way out in the country where she lived, back in West Virginia where I come from. And, you know, I thought I... I thought I'd found my true love. Becky Dickens scored 32 points in that game. Now, it sounds silly, but you know, people get all the way into grown adulthood and still think that way. They look at somebody else's attractiveness on some level or their, their value. Wow, I think I really want that person in my life. And, and it's all mixed up. It's all mixed up. It's all mixed up because God shows us that he picks us not based on our attractiveness. He doesn't say, ooh, now that person's valuable. I think I'll get that person saved and make him part of my kingdom. Ooh, she's got talent. I think I'll make her part of my family. The Bible shows us a completely different picture of how God comes to his people as individuals and his people as a people, as a church, as the, you know, often Israel in the Old Testament, which becomes, in my understanding, in the New Testament, becomes the people of God in a broader way. Listen to what, how God described it in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 16. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not even cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. Instead, You were cast out on an open field. You were abhorred, detested on the day you were born. But when I passed by you and I saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant in the field and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. 
So I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful tiara on your head. And thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. Hey, they had baklava way back then. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to loyalty. Royalty, excuse me. Your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, says, declares the Lord God. Nothing beautiful about that bloody, uncut, brand new baby laying in a field abandoned. God doesn't choose us because we're beautiful. He chooses to make us beautiful. Jeremiah, who was a contemporary of Ezekiel, said something similar. He said, proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruit of his harvest. Now, if you're any kind of student of scripture, you probably know and are probably wondering why I'm not going ahead with the rest of this. Because in both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and also in the book of Hosea, the Lord follows us up by saying, Nevertheless, you grievously abandoned me. But we're not going to go that direction this morning. That's some other time. Just notice that where our relationship begins with God is Him choosing to create us in His own image, to have relationships with us. Then even after we've gone astray and have become so ugly that our own mother doesn't even want to take care of us, and then He comes and He he redeems us and He washes us clean, and He not only makes us clean, He doesn't just forgive us, He adorns us. He makes us beautiful. He clothes us with linen and silk. And God just takes delight in his people. He loves you as a bridegroom loves his bride. And as you come into the New Testament, that same theme is is picked up almost immediately by the very last prophet. That is John the Baptist. John the Baptist says the same thing. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. I'm listening for the, you know, it delights me when I hear the bridegroom's delight in his bride, and I'm just so happy about that. You know, that's how John the Baptist saw himself. And then Paul used those same images. Paul talked about, um, um, I've, clo- I've got it here. Hang on just a moment. I'll say what Paul said. There it is. 2 Corinthians 11. I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. I already jumped to the New Testament, but I want to go back to Song of Solomon. It's a good thing the kids are out of here. <laughs> this is pretty graphic. I won't say lurid. I'll just say graphic. I won't say lurid. Okay? 
here's a song of Solomon who clearly is talking about a male lover and a female lover and how much they love each other. But, you know, rabbis have always understood that this is also talking about Yahweh and his people and New Testament people, especially uh, Bernard of Clairvaux and people like that in, uh, through the uh, medieval times. Not, not the one up the road, but, you know, the real one. Throughout that period, they, they understood this is Christ and his church as well. So it's, you know, it's, all, it, it's not either or. But here, here's what Song of Solomon says. You have, captivated, you have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my bride. How much better is your love than wine, the fragrance of your oils than any spice. As I keep reading, just remember, this is God-inspired, Holy Spirit-inspired words on a human level that are God telling us what he feels about us. I really believe that. I don't think there's any question that Song of Solomon is not just a record of you know, two humans at one moment in time. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits. Henna with nard. Nard and saffron. Calamus and cinnamon. With all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes. With all chief spices, a garden fountain. A well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow and be fragrant. And she says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And the beloved says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink and be drunk with love. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. And onwards. If you ever get a chance, there's some CDs put out by a whole bunch of Afro-American actors. Uh, When I used to teach at Elmhurst College, I taught this Bible class, and almost everybody in the class had never read the Bible. You know, Elmhurst College is a secular school, even though it's sponsored by some church. Um... Anyway, Denzel Washington and his wife read Song of Solomon. <laughs> Denzel Washington reads the Bible an hour a day. He's, anyway, that's another whole subject. But I told the students, hey, if anybody can figure out who this voice is reading Song of Solomon, I'll give you a can of pop or something. And, of course, his voice is so distinctive. I mean, he and Malcolm X sound exactly alike. He could play Malcolm X because he already sounded like him. If you hear either one of them, it's like, was that Denzel or is that Malcolm? Their voices are almost identical. Anyway, they recognize, hey, that's Denzel Washington. We, all those Elmer's College students are really impressed. Wow, Denzel Washington reading the Bible? That's a tangent that has no point other than just an anecdote. That, that's me. You know, just because you hear me tell a story doesn't mean it has any point to it. It's just, it's just there. Okay? <laughs> but anyway, the Song of Solomon... 
and many other parts of Scripture that we've just touched on, and you probably know many more that I haven't even mentioned, just show us over and over and over that one of the principal means or ways by which God communicates to us what He wants to be to us is He wants us to recognize we're His bride. Alliance Bible Church of Bartlett, you are the bride of Christ. Jesus Christ has chosen you for fellowship, for intimate conversations, for sweet, sweet rapport, relationship. He's chosen you for that. And we'll look in just a moment, and then I'll sit down at where it's all going. Because in Revelation, it says, you know, it ends up there. But, you know, I just allude to one more time. The Apostle Paul used metaphors quite a bit. So when you hear about the church in metaphors, you start out with a temple. You often heard Jesus say, you know, I'm going to, you can tear down this temple and then rebuild it. And people said, oh, he's talking about his body. And then he said, well, yeah, my body, you know, it's you guys. You're the temple. But then also, it's more intimately, Paul says often of the church, you're the body of Christ. So you get those different, you know, hands, feet, eyeballs. How's that go? Hands and fingers, knees and toes, knees and toes. How's that go? Something like that. That's more or less. Anyway. But even more intimate than our human, than saying we are the body of Christ, we are the bride of Christ. You as a church are the one whom God has chosen, whom Jesus has chosen to have not merely a redemptive relationship to you. I don't know if you guys listen to those radio programs from Pacific Garden Mission. I've listened to those things for years. I love those stories about people who are just really down and out. One of my friends, was, they told his story on there. I'm too embarrassed to have him tell mine, but I, I would be a good candidate for that Pacific Garden Mission program. Unshackled, you know what I'm talking about? Well, that, you know, that, those are great stories, but that's only part of our relationship to God. He not only redeemed us up out of the gutter and, you know, wiped our lips off the bottle mouth and, you know, got us sober with a few cups of coffee or whatever. He not only did that, but he's turning us into his, this beautiful, beautiful bride. Again, I mentioned that, you know, Susie and I were at a wedding yesterday, so some of these images are right there. Some of the words... You know, that you always hear at weddings, they're so important. And forsaking all others. Whoa. Do you know how significant that is? I told you, Susie and I got married at age 34. There's quite a few others <laughs> historically through there to, to forsake, you know, to leave behind. Okay, the search is over. No more, you know, maybe him, maybe she, maybe her. No, you, you come to that place where you say, this is the only one. And that's what God wants from us. He doesn't want us to have others. I mean, that's, when I was a little kid, I, I wasn't quite sure what the difference is between idolatry and adultery. They sound almost alike, those two words. <laughs> idolatry, adultery. And when I got up, I realized, oh, maybe God did it on purpose. Because <laughs> they really are more or less the same thing. You know, adultery... Idolatry, you know, basically mistaking somebody who isn't the right lover or something that isn't the right thing to love for the real thing. God says, no, I don't want any part of that. You know, I've chosen you to be my bride. So you don't need to play the field anymore. You don't need to, 
you know, kind of keep one or two fingers crossed and kind of look and see what the other options are. You're mine. You're entirely mine. And he wants us to live towards that. I mean, you see that in Paul. You see it in Hebrews. You see it in Peter. You see it in John. I'm talking about the New Testament letters written by those people. It seems like the closer they came to consummating that relationship uh, by passing across the threshold of death into the presence of Jesus, the more they looked forward to it. Now, most of us don't. Most of us go, yeah, I don't, you know, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want it to be today. You know, that's pretty common, even among Christians. You know, we just sort of, eh, sometime, but not real soon, okay? Um, I want to see if the Cubs are going to win again. You know, there's these little, these little diddly things that we kind of, you know, I'll wait. But the people who understood God the best knew that, man, I can hardly wait to get there. And as, as Susie and I have watched uh, the particular persons that got married yesterday, you know, we're in the same church with them over in Lombard, and we've watched them getting closer and closer to this date, and they were just like more and more and more filled up with the thoughts of, this is it, man, this is what I'm headed towards, this is going to be so great, I can hardly wait. And that's how we ought to be looking towards getting together with our bridegroom. We ought to just be looking forward to that time when we unified. And I will go ahead to the end now. I'll get to the Revelation. See, we went all the way from Genesis to Revelation, and it only took about 20 minutes. <laughs> Revelation, there's two passages right at the very end of all the, you got all these things happening throughout human history that are alluded to in dreamlike, vision-like images. And then you get to the very end when it's all finally kind of settled and evil has been expelled and the bad guys are all out of the picture. And now you just have God and those people whom he has redeemed and chosen to be. And this is what he's chosen them to be. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, all of them crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, these are true words of God. And then, having announced this, a few words later in Revelation 21, it says, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with mankind. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Like I said, we we sometimes think heaven is just going to be this remote, ethereal place where God's up there and we're up there and... Hopefully he'll give us a nice place to live. I've got a mansion. 
just over the hillside in that bright land where we'll never grow old. I told you I was from West Virginia. That's, that's how we think of heaven, but what the Bible says is God's going to come down out of heaven, and so is his prepared bride, us, holy Jerusalem. And we're going to live together in this intimacy, together, God and us. It's just so far beyond anything I can imagine, and we just don't think about it. We just think about our relationship to God and all these other such poverty-stricken ways. Because what he says is, no, church, my bride, I've chosen you, I've clothed you, I've anointed you with fragrant oils, and I'm, and I'm, I'm coming to take you together with me, to be with me in holy intimacy forever. So Alliance Bible Church, that's who you are vis-a-vis God. You're his bride, you're his chosen one, you're his beloved Praise his name. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for revealing to us through your word that it isn't because we are attractive. (laughs) Oh, my. No, there's nothing appealing about us. You have chosen us for your own purposes, and you've chosen to take us in our squalor and turn us into beauty. You've created and are creating beauty out of us out of ashes turning us into someone worthy of yourself you've chosen to make us a worthy bride of jesus have your way in us keep doing that just keep doing that process help us not to get in your way or in our own way as you keep on clothing us with righteousness Thank you, Jesus, for having chosen us. Thank you, Father, for choosing us to be your son's bride. And it's in his name, Jesus, we address these thanks. Amen.